0: On today's episode of the Culture Vacuum Podcast, I sit down with Nick Gregorio of Machinima and Dank Fire. So sit back, relax, and get sucked in. Welcome to episode 22 of the Culture Vacuum Podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Pollay, and we got a really uh, special episode here today. Uh, the person I sat down with for about a 90-minute conversation, his name is Nick Gregorio. You may know him from, uh, he's been all over Machinima. He had a YouTube channel called Dankfire, which is now over on Facebook. Action Figures Comics, which is also over on Facebook. He's someone who's in this group of creators that I've been following for a really long time, uh, they all produce really entertaining content that I've consumed for probably three years now, maybe more. It's weird getting to be able to talk to someone like that because I, I am a firm believer of don't meet your heroes because oftentimes it's weird to humanize them. Not, not the part of they turn out to be bad people because most people are actually good people I like to believe but it it is odd humanizing someone who you have an idea of them in your head but I will say this that uh, Nick and I we talked for 90 minutes we probably could have gone for three hours if we if uh, we had unlimited time resources and things to talk about Uh, he is just a, a, a fiercely intelligent person so Uh, If you are expecting a sort of normal episode of the podcast, again, uh, don't expect that. But do expect something that I think is extremely entertaining. This is probably the most fun conversation I've had recording in ages, and also it was a joy to sit down and edit it. If I had any regrets about this interview, it was that in the early parts, and you'll hear this, I kept trying to stick to format, and then... In the back half of it, it was like, yeah, fuck it. Who needs a format? So that's when I just stopped trying to force in topics and just let it flow as freely as uh, as it could. And I think that, uh, that yields the best results. But the whole interview is certainly worth listening to. Uh, a few disclaimers before we get in there. Uh, there are two numbers I dropped that I want to offer corrections for here before we get into that. The uh, the first number I dropped was that Netflix represented 10% of industry spending. Uh that is not accurate. The actual number of Netflix was not in this MPAA report, but digital streaming as a whole represented about half of uh spending and digital home releases. So uh, it was actually bigger than I said it was. The other thing is I mentioned uh podcasting rates uh, being a $25 CPM, uh, and you'll know what that is when you get into the interview, not entirely accurate. I was citing industry averages. It does vary based on size of your podcast, how many listeners you have and among other factors, but $25 is the industry average for a 60 second ad spot in the podcasting industry. And lastly, we did record this interview on the old recording software that we were using a few months ago before we switched to uh, true native podcasting. So the audio does sound good, but it does have those little quirks that you get when you do over-the-internet call recording. So parts where we're talking over each other, you hear some distortion, some weird digital audio blips. Uh, They're impossible to fix, but the audio still sounds better than anything I could get off of Skype. So it's the kind of compromise you make, but it makes it easier to have guests on. So this is the world that we live in. So uh, with that out of the way, please enjoy my conversation with Nick Gregorio. The first half we talk more about movies and film fandom, and then the back half we talk about media in general and how it's dying and nobody knows what to do. So I hope you enjoy it. And I'll be back at the end of this to send you on home with a few calls to action and the like. Joining me today, very special guest host. I'm very excited. Please welcome Nick Gregorio.
1: Hey, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Nick, uh, people who don't know you, uh, you're all over Machinima. You made my favorite web series, which is now dead,
1: Spacebar. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dank Fire with Phil Arrigo. It's a sketch comedy show. Um, we've been on Every platform you can imagine from Facebook to Instagram to YouTube to Sony View behind a paywall. Uh, So, yeah, we have a sketch comedy show and then action figure comics. If you're into comics, we also have that on our Facebook platform as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, I I remember the the Dankfire Vine days, dark days, but uh, you guys did
1: a lot with six seconds. Yeah, we did. That is my favorite. The Death of Vine episode of Dankfire is my favorite one but uh i think people we actually did it too well and people thought it was a real vine and they were like what is this trash but if you there's a lot of great satire in there especially because of how like racist homophobic and misogynistic vine was and sort of celebrated for that in the weirdest way (laughs) but i don't know
0: yeah vine vine was a lot of things and i didn't care too much for it but seeing like i watched that terrible workaholics movie and then oh King Batch, God. King Batch just showed
1: up, and it's like, oh, I guess he's a a, a real thing now. Okay, yeah. not to torpedo the show at all, but that Game Over Man is terrible. That is a terrible movie. When Netflix comes to you and they're like, dude, you can make a movie, do whatever you want. Here's a budget, and that's what those three guys came up with. I mean, it's terrible. It's embarrassing.
0: No, like, it, I'm a, I was a huge fan of Workaholics, and what's weird is, like, that movie, it was very much the humor you would expect out of
1: a Workaholics episode, but it just came off terribly. Yeah, I, I mean, not to get, like, nitty-gritty in the filmmaking of it, but they have five-minute-long scenes. There isn't, like, comedy. They, there's 15 minutes of setup. You don't even get into the crux of the picture until 15 to 20 minutes, and by then I'm like, do you really think people like you that much that they're going to hang around for this? um but the the 5 minute scene in the in the uh hotel room is just terrible like right in the early part of the movie too
0: god awful filmmaking we we i did want to bring up some of the netflix stuff later on so cool. we can definitely get back on this but let's let's get right let's get right into the news nick the russo brothers they put out a tweet or an instagram or something it was a a letter from thanos basically telling the internet not to act in its nature saying please when you see Avengers 4 – when you see Avengers 3, don't spoil it because not everyone's going to see – all the things you would say to adults. My question is, is this really what we've come to? Is that we need some 40-year-old men to sit sit us down like our dads and say, okay, oh, hey, hey,
1: come on. Don't, don't be a dick. Uh, if you're listening – Go see Avengers as soon as you can, because, yes, the Internet is going to be the biggest dick about this movie. You know this, man. This is going to happen like that. People are going to see it Wednesday night, Thursday night before the movie comes out. And they're going to be like Cap dies. Iron Man dies. Hawkeye dies. Like they're just going to they're going to spoil it. And then there's going to be like those false flag spoilers and people are going to it's going to be a mess. So I think they needed to do that, but they might have just put more fuel on the fire.
0: Yeah, it, when, you, when you call it out, it just makes the problem worse. It was re- later revealed that this is actually just alt-right people trying to sabotage a movie because it had black people in it. But there was a Facebook group that targeted the DC diehard fans to say, let's spoil Black Panther for the Marvel fans. Yeah, I'm not saying everyone who joined that was racist, but the people who ran it were. And they were playing on the fact that, I don't know, people just, I think they pick their side and it becomes their identity. And they I have f- to just ruin it.
1: Yeah, it's it's really weird. I I, don't, I never got because I grew up reading both Marvel and DC, and I was excited for both Marvel and DC properties. You know, like I'm not gonna, I don't I don't get the the side choosing of it, and I think all it does is kind of hurt fandom. I really I, I wanted to take a, a big step away from fandom for a long time and just focus on filmmaking because I just hate it where it went, where there was this like way of like qualifying how big of a fan you are and like choose your side, and you need to know like I just didn't like. It wasn't fun anymore, and it became uh, it became more of a chore. And I was like, dude, I just like I enjoy these things. I grew up with them. I don't need to prove to you how big of a fan I am, or pick a side, or root for a certain character, or hope a movie fails. Like I want them all to be good, and and I I I hope like the best for any of the productions that are for superhero characters. I can say
0: the long Halloween changed my life, and also Batman versus Superman was an ambitious pile of garbage. I can say those two things.
1: You can say those two things. Um, I don't know if you want to go down the Snyder verse rabbit hole, but I'm I we talk about it a lot in the in the office and uh still to this day we still want the Snyder cut of Justice League. But it doesn't exist. It does exist, and I know for a fact it does, because I know they screened it.
0: What we know for sure, there was a rough cut that he put out, but every director puts out a rough cut. But by the time that it came time to start working on the final cut, that tr- the tragedy with his daughter happened and he exited the project.
1: Um, I'll just say it was far less of a rough cut than people think.
0: Oh, God. Yep. Having seen Justice League, I think Justice League is a more better put together movie than Batman versus Superman. But Batman... but. It lacked any sense of ambition or hope or 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 any sense. There was no artistry in Justice League, whereas BVS, lots of artistry, lots of big ideas that Zach was working with. Yeah, but the end product was bad. But I, for part of me, does I hate Justice League more than BVS just because
1: it was just. It just it, it was numb and it was weird watching it. Yeah, Justice League was candy. You know, it was like nostalgia candy. Uh, I definitely marked out for the moments when you had the like Elfman score swell up and, you know, they the fact that they brightened it up a little bit. You're like, oh, cool. But I, I it just felt false and it didn't feel yeah. like a cohesive vision. And that, that that ultimately kills any movie.
0: Thor Ragnarok was a better version of just candy. Thor, Thor Ragnarok. Super fun time, but ultimately there's not really that much consequence to the Marvel universe like yes i know asgard blows up but the way the movie handled it was a joke and that's fine because it came off well
1: yeah i i think that's been the formula with the marvel movies and that's my biggest gripe towards them they serialized cinema so they they took the comic books and they adapted them quite literally where the stakes are always very low and the character needs to survive for next month's adventure and that's what we're kind of seeing Um, and finally with infinity war, we're going to get that moment of, of dire stakes. So I'm, I'm excited for that. I think there's really just, I think there's in my humble opinion, I think
0: there's only six really, really good Marvel movies and the rest are just fine except for Thor two. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for
1: cinema, but I really like those six great movies. I, I feel like iron man, the first one, Is a great Mm -hmm. Marvel movie. Uh, I really enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought Winter Soldier was a solid picture. Uh, And, of course, The Avengers. That's probably – those are my, like, top Marvel movies. My my least favorite Marvel movie, and I actually think it's a terrible film, is Doctor Strange. I really did not like Doctor Strange. I felt like it was cheaply made. It was rushed. The character – didn't go through any catharsis there was no he didn't learn anything he just he learned magic that's about it he also went to he was looking for magic spells to fix his hands and he went to a guy and was like hey man i heard magic fixed your back the guy's like oh yeah yeah just go to like indescript eastern country and they'll fix your hands too i was like what it's like what is happening this is a movie nothing's earned sorry (laughs) let's
0: let's go let's dig into that because i think one of the the spacebar episodes when spacebar was on youtube that made the biggest splash is just everyone you had on that show ripping doctor strange apart and it was weird for me because i felt that the the notion of doctor strange was it's fine it's a little less good than ant-man but it's better than incredible hulk i think like i i don't think there's anyone out there who adores doctor strange but you guys seem to harbor like a, a hatred for that movie. And I thought it was fine. I thought the ending was actually really smart. I like that he used his brain instead of his fists because every other Marvel movie is – there's a sky beam. Punch the sky beam. Oh, wow, you won. Yeah.
1: I, OK. So we saw – we had like the advance tickets for Doctor Strange. We wanted, we wanted to see it in advance so we can tackle it on Spacebar that day. And also thank you for being a fan of Spacebar. Spacebar was like my baby and it's – It's I pulled the plug on it ultimately, but it's because I just couldn't find the right footing with the show. I didn't know where it was supposed to go and it needed needed more attention than we were allowed to to give it because of all the other things we're working on. So but thank you for being a fan of that. Uh, So with with Doctor Strange, we we went in advance We're like, man, we're going to be hot on the heels of this news. We're going to do the live space bar. People will tune in. We'll have it ready, like up and running. Uh, And we really didn't like it. And we we went in. I mean, we had a few drinks. We were laughing, joking. We were just looking to have a good time in the theater. And I remember it was just so egregious. And I heard people in the theater be like, oh, my God, The Eye of Agamotto. Oh, my God. And I'm like, yeah, but like just those are are Easter. That's like the cherry on top of a really well-made cake with handmade icing. Like you can't just sprinkle those throughout and be like, that's a good movie. I felt the sets were cheap and recycled. They use a lot of the same sets. All the trippy stuff that I was expecting, I'm like, uh, this is just VFX that are in any movie. Like they, this level of VFX manipulation is in is in any movie you go see. And then I, I really thought that the character just did a disservice to what the modern hero should be. He was a cocky prick. He got in a car accident, hurt himself, stayed a cocky prick. Easily found a way to learn magic in this weird hostel in India where. Everyone just learns magic and then he was still a cocky dick and there was no – it didn't seem like – the only thing that I will give it is that the end sequence was really well thought out with the time manipulation and how he defeated Dormammu. But it wasn't – I don't think it was enough to redeem the kind of character flaws of the movie in my opinion.
0: That's that's fair. I think the – if we're if we're going on like worst ones, I, I think Thor 2 is absolutely the worst MCU movie just because there it there's nothing to it. And Iron Man 3, as a huge fan of the extremist graphic novel, I was offended by Iron Man 3. But yeah. As the as the years go by, I've realized, you know, if Iron Man 3 was just a Shane Black movie about two spies who go hunt a terrorist and then that twist with the Mandarin happened everyone would have loved it there's like oh, that's a great twist good job Shane Black but since they did that in a Marvel movie and with that character just I think that's what pushed everyone to hate it
1: yeah I I look at the Iron Man trilogy and if we want to consider it that way I don't think it's a failure I you know I, I like Iron Man too as well I think there's a lot of good in it oh I, I adore Iron Man too, and I, I don't know why it's, just it's a fun. fun movie and I think it's it's it feels like a comic book. There's everyone's like there's too much going on. I'm like, well, that's a comic book. Like there's ridiculous stakes. Like, well, that's a comic book. You know, it it did all the things that I liked and it's really well made. If you go back and watch that, all the Iron Man movies are really well made. Like the the level of polish and quality that went into them. You don't you don't get that with all all the MCU movies, like especially the CG heavy ones. But uh, Iron Man 3 I think is a fine movie. People were really hard on that one. I don't like the whole and and it seems like it's a Marvel go to like you said, let's fight the sky thing. But it's it's sort of the more is more shit show finale um, where you're like, yeah. what am I looking at right now? There's just you know, there was so many Iron Man suits and it was it was just so much was going on at the end of Iron Man 3 because it it started out as this very small Shane Black movie you know when we're just like a you know like you said like a spy movie and then by the end of it it's this superhero fiasco and that's that's where it really lost me as a viewer i was like oh man it's like a lot going on in the uh, third act i think the
0: big problem with the the iron man trilogy is that uh, in order for a movie to be a movie, the character needs to have an arc. But in order for Tony Stark to still be Tony Stark, he always needs to be a cocky smarmy. In each movie, he goes through an arc and he's less of a dick at the
1: end. But in the next movie, he's cocky and smart. Yeah, again. and I think, you know, I, I just said that there was no kind of – there was no arc for um, Doctor Strange. Uh, but I think that Robert Downey Jr., because of how good of an actor – and he's he's frankly a better actor in the role of Iron Man than Cumberbatch is in the role of Doctor Strange. Um, I don't whether or not they're better actors outside of that. But in those two roles, what the humanity that he brought to Iron Man, I think the entire MCU is built upon his sense of humor, his approach to acting, his ability to mix comedy and drama with dry wit, with, you know, cocksureness. Not a lot of actors have that like he is a true movie star. He was raised in Hollywood. He comes from a family of movie stars. Robert Downey Jr. is the real deal. So I can forgive that because he gives you – he gives you a full performance. He is not phoning it in. you know. Like he he goes 100 percent in the role of Tony Stark when he plays him. I don't – Oh, yeah. He yeah. I don't think the same like, can be said about nothing. Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. I, it felt very false.
0: There's, so there's a series of interviews on Netflix that just got licensed there. It's called The Sit Down. It's not a Netflix original but – uh, it's this photographer, I think, uh, and he sits down with a lot of actors. And the first episode that's on Netflix is with Robert Downey Jr. and I watched it. And there's a point in the interview where they date it, and it's he mentions that they're in early production on The Judge, which is you know the big movie that he made. It was his passion project outside of the yeah. MCU. It was his way to prove that he was something beyond it. I don't know if you saw The Judge. Not a Did great not movie. Skip it's fine. It, yeah. If, if you saw the judge it's like oh i don't and it also didn't do that well financially so i think it showed rdj because at the time he was sort of acting like he was better than the mcu he still gave a good performance but outside when he was in interviews he seemed like he was better than now yeah. and the, the judge is what really centered him it's like no this is gonna be your legacy you can make movies outside of it but you gotta come to yeah. play ball
1: because i you know robert downey jr uh I'm I'm older than you. He failed in his career. He was a drug addict. He was in and out of rehab. He blew a million opportunities. He had a comeback on Ally McBeal, and then he got arrested for cocaine again. So, like, him being cast as Iron Man was such a long shot. You know, when, when people heard that, they were like, what? Robert Downey Jr.? Like, I, I really like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It was, like, in my early film days. I was probably in, like, college. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was awesome. But I was like, can Robert Downey Jr. handle like a superhero movie, and and also can a production company handle an Iron Man superhero movie? You know, the expectations were very low for that movie, so that's also one of the reasons why I think it did so well. Yeah, the reason that I saw Iron Man, I mean, I was
0: uh very I was ten, yeah, so I was uh ten when it came out, and I was like, I saw the ads for it, I thought it was interesting, but I don't think there were any huge plans for the whole family to go see it and the reason that we wound up seeing it was because my mom was a huge robert yeah, downey jr <laughs> fan and that was his first movie in age says oh my oh, my fa- one of my favorite actors robert downey jr and she like told me the story of him being a drug addict and his wife got him back yeah. on track and then that's why we saw iron man and then i don't think she cared for it that much but i <laughs> yeah, she was time. like oh this
1: sucks it's like a kid's movie and you're like this
0: is awesome." No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how she liked it, but yeah, then that was the day that the gypsy woman cursed me to see every single nerd go. movie, and I I'm doomed. That's that's why I didn't want to see Ready Player One, but Gypsy oh, cursed. Ready Player One was good. Uh, good. I liked it.
1: I liked it way more than the book. I'm with you. I me, me too.
0: Uh, let's let's get more out, outside of the MCU. Uh, d- uh, other news stories, and then after that, we'll we'll, th- we'll do our big conversation segment. So the Rock and Vin Diesel they've been they've been button heads together. Uh, then the rock gave this very candid interview where it ended saying i uh something along the lines of i have no ill will towards him and then he said scratch that so they don't like each other the rock may not be in fast nine is what people are speculating but uh these movies are nothing without the rock they were nothing before he came and then when he came they immediately
1: became better so i don't i don't know how good fast nine so, do I have a long his, history of fandom with The Rock. I mean, I got his—once upon a time, a young Nikki G got his autograph when he was the Intercontinental Champion of the WWF, before it was WWE, and he had just won it, and he was in Philadelphia in the basement of a clothing store signing autographs. So I've been a fan of The Rock most of my adult life, since he was The Rock. Now as an adult, when I look at how he does business, I don't think he's a great actor, I think he is a big personality. I mean, he's basically, in every every role he's in, in all these movies, he's playing the pro wrestler character of The Rock with some moments of, like, humanity. I, I would say his best work is on the show Ballers, and that's still not great. Is he charismatic? Is he larger than life? Is he a movie star? Yes. Yes to all those things. Vin Diesel, on the other hand, is an actor. And, I mean, I I know everyone thinks he's crazy, but, like, he is an actor. He does consider himself an artist. He does consider himself a filmmaker. Like, and he has a passion for the craft, where I think The Rock has a passion for stardom. I side, I do side with Vin Diesel in this because he didn't want to do the fast movies because of money, because he thought he was a bigger movie star, and he had to eat humble pie when he came back to the franchise because he realized how important it was to him. Is he an egomaniac? Probably. Like, He's probably a dick, too. But I just think there's something very disingenuous about The Rock and how The Rock presents himself publicly. And even when he gives these, like, candid interviews, he's still being very much The Rock in it, you know, like trying to be diplomatic. But at the end end of the day, like, you know, he's like, it doesn't matter what you, you know, he just, he's throwing some shade there because he can and because he knows that's what his brand is. I don't think Vin Diesel or even Tyrese, who was a psycho, they weren't throwing shade at The Rock. They were they were being genuinely passionate about like, hey, you're going to do a spinoff. And like, that's not what this is about. And for you to do that, you're turning in the you're kind of cheapening the experience. And again, I know it's a fast movie. They're big action blockbusters, but at least that that's my perspective on it.
0: Vin Diesel. Like when do you know the story behind The Last Witch Hunter? I know
1: that that movie exists and I know it's pretty insane.
0: It's not a very good movie, but the origin is Vin Diesel was a huge yeah, yeah. D&D player, and he got, he got the name of his D&D character scrawled, some tattooed somewhere on his body, and then he decided to make The Last Witch Hunter. And his character in The Last Witch Hunter is his character that he's oh, always okay. been no, in no, D&D. Cool. That, is, that is some deep level nerddom, and I, and I do admire that. I, th- I think with the Fast and Furious movies, my introduction to the franchise was in 7. And then my friend Michael, his introduction to the franchise was in Fast 8. So we've only known the franchise with The Rock. And I went back and I watched Fast 5. Fast 5 is by far the best Fast and Furious movie because you have The Rock. You have The Rock as that villain. The action was still semi-grounded. Fast 7 and 8 there is just... They're too stupid, but I think The Rock is part of the appeal of these movies. I think if you take The Rock out of Fast Eight, because I didn't like Fast Eight that much. Without The Rock in that movie, I would not have liked it at all. Because he has the best parts in those movies, except Jason Statham with the with the airplane fight. And that's why they're getting a spinoff. And I think it's hard for the rest of the cast to like understand, you know, it's if, if you if you treat Hollywood as a free market.
1: The market says that they like
0: Jason Statham and The Rock
1: better than the But rest I, I of also cast. think in Fast Five, the reason The Rock works is because he's a small part of a bigger movie. And it, it, again, it's, it's my problem with him as an actor and a movie star is that he hijacks movies and turns them into stupid cartoons. The second The Rock's in a movie, you're like, oh, here he goes. He has a perfectly tailored safari outfit with his bulging biceps and his crazy bald head. Like he looks so out of place. He doesn't look like a real person. So the second he's front and center, but it worked in fast five because he was supposed to be this hopped up, insane Navy seal dude that was part of a covert unit. It doesn't work when he, st- when he becomes one of the good guys and he's on screen all the time. Cause then you're like, Oh, this movie's broken. Now everything's cartoony. Now everything's tongue in cheek. Like it's basically Deadpool. It's fourth wall breaking. Like Vin Diesel is insane as he is. I think he did take the movie seriously. You know, I think he took the role seriously. And whether or not, like, you could laugh at him for that, that's, that's a whole other story. But there, there's something about that. I think The Rock just does The Rock. You know, I think The Rock is more concerned with looking yeah. yoked on screen than he is about the movie being good or his performance being good.
0: The Rock being The Rock hit peak. Rock in Jumanji, which I did not care for as a movie, but every fifth joke was, oh look, the rocks in this movie. Like it was, oh wow, look how buff I am, or look how handsome I am. And the best part of Jumanji was not the rock, though. The best part of Jumanji was Jack Black be playing Jack Black Trap. Yeah. Playing a teenage girl. Yeah. That was the best part of Jumanji by a mile. People love Jumanji for some reason. I don't know why. I thought it was below average, but Jack Black in it, great. But the rest of it, I eh. mean, it's a,
1: it's a current—it's a current critical double standard. Everyone gives a pass to movies like Jumanji because it's fun, it's stupid, it's not supposed to be a big deal, and then they'll critique like BVS as if it's Citizen—you know, it's Citizen Kane—and they tear it to smithereens. And it's like, no, everyone grades on a curve. People will say oh, you know, Thor, uh, Ragnarok, like, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be that. That's why you, you're you allowed, you can give it a pass. And I'm like, no, dog, you're supposed to critique things. Th- there are rules for critiquing art. And we should never stray from those. And I know that's a very um, academic way to look at it. But that's how you need those rules. You need that foundation, because then you could say, okay, is Jumanji a satire? Or is it a money grab? You know, is it is it a sketch gone too long or is it a satire on the idea of comedy and stardom and fame and teenage life? But it's not. It's just a money grab. It's a bunch of junk. It's junk food.
0: We grade movies here. We place them on a bell curve because like when, when you use a bell curve, you're acknowledging a 10 should be as rare as a zero. Most movies are going to be fine. And whether you think fine is a five or a six is up to you. But the just keeping a bell curve in mind, I think it's always good when, when we're reviewing movies like – uh, the best. I love Black Panther. I love Annihilation. But the most fun I've had in a movie theater so far this year is watching the Taraji P Henson movie, Proud Mary.
1: And that, I mean, that's awesome. You know, it's it's and that was an original concept, right? There was no like franchise tied to it.
0: Oh, have you seen Proud Mary?
1: I have not seen Proud Mary.
0: It's not a good movie, but <laughs> the it is. It's actually a terrible movie, but it. And I I know it's hyperbolic, but I not since the room have I seen a movie so unaware of how terrible it is. Yes. And the way that certain dialogue if you if you choose to listen to the old episodes of this podcast after you've been on it, I encourage you to listen to our Proud Mary episode, which we reviewed with Call Me by Your Name, which in hindsight is a weird combo. But Proud Mary <laughs> I genuinely believe if it gets second life on home video will become one of those cult classics that you just sit down to watch and enjoy how terrible like the it is. The plot makes no sense. They name drop characters as if you're supposed to know who they're
1: talking about. It is. Well, that's it great. is near. I can definitely get my wife to watch that because she, she likes Tarazi P. I mean, we both like Tarazi P Henson, but my wife likes that style of movie. So not ironically (laughs) yes
0: yes it is it is it is one of those so bad they're good moments and you know it's called proud mary so of course the song proud mary is going to play in the movie but when the song does eventually hit it just it lands with a thud and you're like what it's the it's the prime example of you should have gotten a different editor for this oh
1: yikes It
0: is when I was watching, I was like, because Taraji, when she accused the studio of being racist and not marketing it enough. And I'm like, I'm going to go see this and see if she has a point. So I went in just expecting to see if Taraji was right or Sony was right for not marketing it coming. I was like, I can't believe that exists. Who decided (laughs) to spend money on this?
1: What? Uh, That's that's one of the things I love about the movie industry, because it, it really is a double edged sword. And I like I tweeted out about the room because I really like The Disaster Artist. It was kind of it was my favorite movie of last year. Everyone in this industry from the top dog on down, I, I imagine even Steven Spielberg, everyone always worries that they're Tommy Wiseau, that they're making mm-hmm. a terrible movie and they just can't see it. Or that, you know, that they're like The Emperor's New Clothes, they're standing there naked. And I think that this industry above all else because a movie can really get away from you. Um, I've made two feature films, and like scenes and aspects and characters can really get away from you sometimes, and you don't know, and you might not know until the editorial phase. Like, oh, that doesn't work, and if you can't recognize that, and it stays in the picture, that's when you get those really tone deaf, insane moments that you're like, wow, like this is this is like a golfily awful.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I can. Okay, so. Uh, i'll ask you i'll ask you this before we move on to like the last news pieces i wanted to focus on uh something i've like made one of the issues that i focus on all is like i don't understand that like because i've been watching uh, film punditry online for a long time and it was a narrative i was fed and believed until i recently realized it's completely false like it seems that the media that Talks about film fetishizes this idea of Marvel or Disney or DC or whatever taking a very inexperienced director and plopping them in a blockbuster because it worked out in some instances. But we also saw what happened to Josh Trank and Colin Trevorrow, where Colin Trevorrow got to make his Jurassic World and it was fine, but then he went off and made Book of Henry. Like, you don't have time with a million dollar movie to hone your craft. How do I know to trust you?
1: With a $150 million movie. Yeah, it, it, it's tough because at the end of the day, it's a job, right? It's work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what people outside of the industry, they romanticize it and they, they make it bigger than what it is. But really, it's like a construction job and everyone has their part and everyone has their role. And it's things – the magic wears off very quickly. And I know that sounds jaded, but it it's it's true you know when you're you're working off a script that's probably in its 100th draft so the joy has been sucked out of that motherfucker you know what i mean like you no one's reading that again and being like i love this script you're like i don't know what the hell we're making and then you get on set and it's the set's not what you expected it to be or the turnaround time where this actor's now has a schedule conflict like there's a lot that goes on and it's for the i think the veteran filmmakers know how to handle it cuz they've been there it's experience and I think I think Disney and, a Mar- and the Marvel movies uh, in particular find that kind of up and coming but still on the green side of director because they don't want to fight. They don't want an Edgar Wright, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think I would say uh, Taika Waititi did one of the best jobs, and Ryan Johnson also of taking something that look. There are things you have to do with these movies. It doesn't matter. It Doesn't matter what you want to do as a director. They are bigger than. They're bigger than the one movie. They're about merchandise. They're about billions of dollars. There's things you have to do to like to just check the boxes. You know, like we need a sequel. We need this to happen. We need to sell this type of merchandise. You can't kill people. You can't use profanity. You can't do. There, there's certain specifications to these movies, and I think Taika Watiti and Ryan Johnson did a great job of working within the specs to still have elements of their vision without it being their complete vision.
0: I think uh, th- the same goes for James Gunn. And yeah, James think- Gunn.
1: James, but I think James Gunn had a lot more freedom.
0: Ben. Yes, but when you when you look at Tyka and you look at Ryan Johnson, you look at James Gunn. They all had at least three movies under their belt. So that's three very cheap movies. So that's a lot of time for them. To hone their craft and specialize, A
1: completely different type of. I mean, stylistically, completely different.
0: But I am just on like in terms in terms of just honing your craft and experience. I do think there is a value in staying small. No, no, it's
1: true because the closer the closer you are to the filmmaking process, the more you know. The more steps you yourself have done, like if you op camera, if you set up lights, if you edit, if you sound design, if you dabble in BFX and color grading, the, on a smaller scale, then you know how to communicate on a larger scale.
0: Yeah. And- I think Lucasfilm, they did learn because the other reason, if and it's, we have to be honest, the reason that Disney takes these small directors and puts them onto big projects is because they can pay them less and they think that they can control them more. But Kathleen Kennedy discovered with Solo and now her career is on the line because she made this mistake. Lord and Miller, she thought they were green directors she can control but they had made three movies so they were pretty experienced. She brings them onto Solo. It Does not turn out the way she wants. So then she backtracks. Now she's with Ron Howard. Ron Howard, I liked Rush quite a bit, but he hasn't made a great movie in a very long time. But Ron Howard knows how to make a movie. He
1: knows how to make a movie. And I think Solo is tough for me because no one wanted that movie. And Han Solo was young in the original Star Wars. So it's like, how much younger is he? He wasn't, you know, it's it's, it's like, no one wants to see a teenage Han Solo. So you're telling me this is the five years before the events of the original star Wars trilogy. You're like, so what, you know, it's kind of like, so, so what I would, I, w- I would have rather growing up. I was a big star Wars fan. I'd rather see an adventure in the star Wars universe that I would never expect to see, but with all the trappings, I love space travel, you know uh, blaster duels and lightsaber duels and bounty hunters and cool ships and different ports that's what i want to see i don't need to see han solo reimagined that's that That was yeah we never i I feel like han solo's story was told already in the original trilogy
0: the argument i make to people who who are excited for solo and it's fine if you're excited for solo but what i would say is like Okay, how does knowing how he met Chewbacca improve your enjoyment of the character in any way? I think it's cool that Han Solo is just this guy you randomly meet in most Eisley, and his best friend is a giant furry monster.
1: What more do you need from also, that? Also, I don't want him to have done things redeeming earlier in his life because I like the fact that when you meet him, he's a villain. He's not even he, he's not even close to a good guy in the beginning of the original Star Wars and not until the end of the movie that he redeems himself. But he's always, you know, he's going back and forth with that character. And I'm, I'm sure you, you've you heard this, too. But when a character appears in a movie, this is the best moment of their life. Like this is the most no- noteworthy moment in their life. So when you tell me to go back and watch a prequel, I call bullshit on it because you shouldn't be writing a movie about a character who has better stories in their past. Like you should be writing about the best story. If you come up with a character, you're like, this is the defining story of their life. And it's the most important story of their life. And that's how you should treat your characters. If you are a writer or a filmmaker. Uh, And then to go and try to retcon and make a prequel to be like, but no, 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 no. Let me tell you exactly how it went down, which led him to be this. I'm like, "I I don't care. Like that's, I got enough. I already got enough from the character. Yeah, the financials
0: of Solo are actually uh, eerily similar to that of Justice League with these re- with these remakes. And you look at the amount of money that Lucasfilm has already spent on it, and they're going to have to spend to market it. This movie's probably going to need to make seven hundred million dollars, eight hundred million to break even before it even begins to make a profit I don't think people are talking about this because they're just assuming solo is gonna do great and if solo comes out and it's a good movie it'll make it it's it's tracking well for opening weekend it's gonna make a lot of money if it's a good movie but if solo comes out and it's not up to par and the financials lag Kathleen Kennedy's probably going to lose her job Lucasfilm as we know it is going to get shaken up because they've she sunk so much cash onto this. It has to do well. It's it's not an option. It's not allowed to be their one whoopsie because that's a
1: really big whoopsie. Yeah, now. It, I, I mean, again, it, when you look at it practically, when you look at it as an industry, if you start a construction job and halfway through you fire everyone, you bring new people in, and you have to re you have to tear up the old work and lay new foundation. Like it's yeah, it's expensive. It's 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 real dollars and cents. It's not just Hollywood accounting. Yeah, she's she's putting herself on the line for salaries. Imagine all those new days of production. That's everyone that's on set. It's not just the actors, not just the directors. It's it's everyone down to the PAs. You're now paying everyone another what, twenty-five percent of what you were expecting to pay more than that? They shot like fifty percent? No, they shot up to eighty percent of the wow. movie and then Ron Howard came and then shot longer
0: than Lord and Miller shot. Now the VFX, those were done years ago. So they didn't have to do the VFX again, but Again, the most expensive part of a movie is the VFX and just salaries for the hundreds of people working on it. People aren't talking about it because they're just assuming Solo will do well. And if Solo does well, everything I said is irrelevant. But there is a real risk that this movie loses a lot of money and a lot of people get it, fired.
1: I don't think Kathleen Kennedy will get fired because she's just been there for too long. She might get moved, but I don't think she'll get fired. You know, Amy Pascal did not get fired from Sony after that whole email gate scandal, not to mention, and all of her failures. I mean, that that woman cannot catch a win. She had to, like, bring Kevin Feige on board, and she finally got something, and then she's going to screw it up again with Venom. But, like, you don't – I'm I'm (laughs) going to tell you something. You don't get fired in Hollywood, and producers don't get fired. They just get moved to other jobs and positions. Venom, you
0: mean man running away Um, from
1: things, the movie? I don't know how the – No one coached, uh, what the heck's his name? He's playing Eddie Brock. I'm blanking right now. Tom Hardy. No one coached Tom Hardy on how to address fans. Like, don't be like, I'm Venom and hold your shirt. Like, it was the, I was like, what are you doing, dude? That's the last (laughs) thing you should ever do, like when addressing fans of uh, a, a comic book character. Again, Gypsy Curse. I have to see it yeah I okay. mean, so it it doesn't matter. before we get
0: into ranting about how everything's falling apart, Netflix, we talk about Netflix all the time. There were two big stories about it. first, they did a profile on Ryan Murphy who did he does a ton of stuff. Uh, he does American Horror story, 911 he did Glee. He's every good show that Fox has had in the last decade, Ryan Murphy has done it. And he recently moved to Netflix for a five-year exclusive deal with them and then also the MPAA released their annual report and netflix was in that report in terms of how much money was spent making movies and i think netflix they make up more than 10 percent of all the income in the industry now wow. in terms of dollars spent on production
1: yeah it's it's a changing world you know i saw uh steven spielberg spoke out about Netflix movies and and feature-length movies in particular because he said they're made for TV movies. That's just an example of you're old. He's old. And yeah. when you came up in the industry, that's how it worked. But now the industry has changed. And I'm not saying we listen to the youth, but you need to understand where your industry is going and that you are no longer at the forefront of it anymore. He's an amazing director. I think a lot of you know the old directors are brilliant directors. They, they haven't been surpassed the current crop of directors. I don't particularly like as much as the older crop, but I think the mentality is, is all wrong. You know, and I think my boy Scorsese, he embraces it straight away. You know, Netflix was like, Hey, you want to make a movie your way? He was like, in fact I do. And he'll go make his three hour long Irishman movie, but it, it's about understanding trends and embracing them. And if Netflix is where the money is, that's where the audience is, and that's what people want to see.
0: I think the issue with Netflix is their TV it is pretty good. I haven't – there hasn't been a great Netflix original series in a while, I no, feel. No, House of Cards was, Some, was their best series. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, they they came out with a limited series that was a Western. I'm forgetting the name of it. Godless. Godless was actually pretty good, but that was a one-off, so they can't do anything with that. Stranger Things, the first season, was was pretty good, but – They haven't hit House of Cards level in a while because House of Cards, BoJack Horseman, those shows all came out around the same time. So they've been in this lull of we just have to make content like they have 700 new shows coming out this year. And if that sounds like too many shows for one person to watch, it is because they're just going to say the algorithm will decide which show is best for you.
1: This is what they're preparing for. Disney is going to pull out of Netflix and I'm telling you there will be a they're going to decimate the platform. That's why they need. 700 new shows because I don't think you realize how many shows are either like from uh, Disney or an ABC production or a Marvel production that are on there that are going to be completely erased from the platform. So Net- Netflix is really mounting um, kind of like a, a defense against losing most of their, most of their probably most popular content.
0: Yeah. I've been following the stuff that Disney's been announcing for this service and they do have some stuff for people like you and me like there's going to be the Star Wars show from John Favreau and then uh, some other stuff around that but it really seems that they're going strictly for family oriented like the the lady and the tramp live action movie uh that's being produced for the Disney app and they're not going to release that in theaters of course the entire Disney vaults probably going to be there every Pixar movie like i think people are I'm still very excited for it because of the star Wars and Marvel stuff they could do there. But it seems like this app is just going to be for families in terms of the original content they make for it, which is like, uh, my, uh, my friend, his, his mom, uh, he has a little, a very little sister. If you can tell me, if you tell her, Oh, for five, $7 a month, you get every Pixar movie. They're going to
1: do that. It's not a question. It's, when can I sign up for? It? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I have a, a two year old, I got another kid on the way, so I mean, the Disney app is the the Disney programming on Netflix is big in my house, and it's it's more, it's all it's all over the place. I think you know you're going to lose the Marvel Knights. I think they're going to pull them from the platform, and they might because of the rights dispute, we might not get them on um, the Disney app either. So they might just go away. That Daredevil was a very popular show for. I think that Disney owns all those shows outright. Okay, and Netflix was
0: just the just the was just the licensor for it. Like you have uh, BoJack Horseman is in the days when they still license content, and they licensed it from the studio that makes it, but the studio still owns all the rights. Netflix is just the exclusive streamer of it. So like BoJack Horseman is going into syndication now, but Netflix doesn't see any of that.
1: Oh. Okay, so yeah, I so mean, you know, I mean, I I felt like Netflix took a very the proper approach to the digital age of media you know they they give you decent budgets they give you realistic budgets i watched bright i thought bright was okay i didn't think it was a terrible movie um i think people were uh, were re- i thought they were really hard on it i mean i i thought that uh i normally don't say this but it needed a little exposition to establish what what we were uh the world we were in <laughs>
0: i think i think it was I think it was peak Max Landis having a great idea and then not exploring that idea anymore. Yeah, like, yes, oh, there's orcs, Hollywood. but but wait, there were, there were elves and orcs at the Alamo and the Alamo still turned out the same way? What? Wait, elves and orcs have been around for thousands of years and history played out exactly the same way except there's just elf cities? What? What what are you talking about? Max Landis And also
1: I'm I'm pretty sh- we ran in similar circles when he wasn't fleeing the country. Um the way he, he would yeah, I know Max Landis. Uh
0: No, no, I mean like fleeing the
1: country. There but, was I don't know, there was like sexual mean, wasn't there like sexual assault allegations and I heard he left the country.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, there were some allegations. Yeah, he, he left, the country. He left yeah, the country. Yeah, he went
1: to but... he went to England. He's not yeah, oh. he's not in Hollywood anymore. Um, and it was almost immediately after the allegations. So the word on the street was that he was fleeing the country. The way I've heard him talk about screenwriting, to me, it sounds like because of who he is and who his family is, people buy first drafts off of him because a lot of his stuff feels like a first draft. Like the problems with Bright could have been fixed in multiple drafts.
0: The issue with Bright is that uh, they piss off people and then resolve their problems with those people in the order they piss them off. And there's no surprises in the entire movie. It's not like it's not like Get Out. Like if you if you watch Get Out, Jordan Peele says he stopped writing that movie 20 times before he finally finished it. And there's just little things that every time you go back and watch Get Out, like there's a little line where he's in bed with the girlfriend. and He says, I don't want them chasing me off the the lawn with a shotgun. And she says, no, they won't because it's her that chases him off the lawn with a gun. That the script for Bright is just if it's a it's like someone bought a screenwriting book and then just followed the advice to a, to a t and never touched it
1: again. Yeah, and it I think it was a neat conceit, you know, um I always use my wife as a barometer because she likes things like Grey's Anatomy and Real Housewives of Orange County. She would never watch a show like Bright because there's just not enough in it to ground it even though there's like very grounded elements there's just not enough information about the world or the characters or about the people and it's like you're asking you're asking a lot of netflix who are casual viewers to to buy into like orcs and i've always i don't think you know orcs and fairies are very they're super nerdy and you're you're building like you're building this modern world on their mythology and that's asking a lot from your audience member because if you've never seen a Lord of the Rings movie or read a fantasy book, you don't know what they are. You don't know the intrinsic value of an orc or a fairy. I I just saw
0: A Quiet Place and the way that that movie plays out, it's great by the way, you should absolutely see it, but the way that A Quiet Place plays out is very much you're just getting a peep into an established world. But John Krasinski and his writers do enough they do a good enough job of giving you enough to understand how the world works. It doesn't matter that you didn't have a Lord of the Rings 5-minute exposition at the beginning of the movie. You get it because they
1: they built it well. Yeah, and and I'm I'm assuming they're not or maybe they are, don't spoil it for me, but Bright was playing on archetypical characters though. Bright was saying Bright was assuming that you they were telling a story that was very bold. You know, they weren't being subtle with it dude is an orc in yeah. a cop uniform. Will Smith kills a fairy in the beginning of the movie. Like you need to have, like if you don't know what the fuck a fairy or an orc is, you're like, what is, what the hell is going on? Like, is that guy a pig man? Like, no, he's an orc. Like, what the hell is an orc? An orc is a <laughs> like a monstrous being from the, uh, the olden days. I don't know. I, I wouldn't even know how to explain it properly. You know,
0: like, Oh, Nick, you didn't see the PG 13 exposition graffiti at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> I thought that did all the work. <laughs> Netflix doesn't have the great Netflix movie yet. They don't no. have the House of Cards of movies like Aakcha. I think they produced Aakcha, and Aakcha was pretty good. But they don't have a movie that everyone's like, "Wow, that knocked my socks off." I thought Mudbound was excellent. I I couldn't get through it. I'm so sorry. Let's
1: see, you're too young. No,
0: no. everyone. <laughs> I tried watching it, and the first 20 minutes went fine. I'm like, I I think I see where this. Is. I need to just power through it. Because I know it got all the, the awards buzz and people loved it. I could not finish that movie. It is nothing against it. It's just I didn't get it, I guess.
1: Uh. I, I thought it was a very honest movie. I thought it um, it painted a, a very bold picture, but it was also a character piece and it established its world very well. It wasn't a one-sided, like, because that's what I always worry about with a movie like that. Like, I don't want to be depressed for the entire movie. Um, With a movie like Mudbound, like, I don't want to be mired down in the muck for this whole picture. And I think it did a good job of even characters that were despicable, making them likable enough to watch them for two and a half hours. And, and the cinematography is gorgeous in that movie. I think, but again, with Mudbound, they didn't make that. They bought it at a festival. Like they have
0: not – I don't think there's a movie that Netflix from has – scratch, yeah. Yes. They they found the script. They plopped down the money for it. They hired the director. They've made plenty of movies like that. They've just all been terrible. <laughs> yeah. And they – and I don't know what the problem is. Maybe Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is going to be great, but there's a reason every studio turned him down before he went to Netflix.
1: I mean but that's that just – that's been that dude's career. Scorsese got turned down for everything. Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street wouldn't have wouldn't have been made, I think, if Brad Pitt didn't give him money from like Plan B to finish it. So that Mm -hmm. that's just been Marty's M.O. I mean, no one wanted to make Silence. I know that's been a like it hasn't been the most well-received picture, but I think it's a brilliant movie Um, that took him forever to make a lot of the stuff that he does. um, because I'll tell you this. I have a friend of mine, screenwriter, made a million dollars at one point in his career. He's in the new Hollywood now trying to sell scripts again. Uh, Much of what I do is producing. So he was like, Nick, you know, he was pitching me all this stuff and he has like really great and passionate speeches. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter. I was like, because the person you're pitching to has a kind of bingo card and you need to hit the five things that their studio heads or the execs above them want to see made. And if you can't hit those five things, or like, I don't care, I don't care if it's the most amazing movie you've ever heard, they're not going to make it. And that's the sad truth about it. It really is that. There's no, you, and even if you're Martin Scorsese, people are like, yeah, but Marty, people don't want gangster movies anymore. That ship has sailed. I'm sure that's I'm sure all their data and their metrics say their uh, brand intelligence is like, nope. No one wants to watch a gangster picture anymore, especially not with Robert De Niro. He's not hot at all, but... The reason that Ryan Murphy agreed to Netflix is that Netflix sat him down and they
0: showed him every single metric that they have on how his shows perform on Netflix, and that's what convinced him to go over. It's like, oh, your entire... They say, hey, your content is the most watched on Netflix in every single market we operate in. And then they among other uh data that he didn't disclose and but that's how they got ryan murphy over because netflix has so many metrics they're like they didn't just plunk down four adam sandler movies just because they they were feeling it no. is because the adam sandler movies they have are the best move performing movies on netflix
1: and you're right netflix hasn't struck gold with a movie yet or a tv show but you know what they're like they're trying they're trying to make compelling content you know they're trying to dare i say make art in some instances and they're giving people the ability to express themselves in that kind of way. Do I think it's going to change? Yes. I, I think they're going to have to hone that edge a little bit more They because uh, right now it's just sort of a free-for-all. But a guy like Ryan Murphy, a guy like Martin Scorsese, those guys are very good at editing – like self-editing. You know, I think maybe some of the other – especially the stand-up comedy specials uh, in particular, those people aren't very good at editing – themselves and i I mean that from like a physical like editing on a computer to like just editorially knowing what works and what doesn't
0: some of those netflix comedy specials i what's weird with comedy is it all falls on the comedian if netflix gives a special to a bad comic it's going to be a bad special but uh neil brennan's special uh dave Chappelle's old writing partner i just watched his uh his was great uh both Chappelle and rock's stuff is incredible I have to watch Chris Rock's. Uh, I mean, I really liked uh, Jim Gaffigan. Chris,
1: I thought his was really Chris strong. Chris
0: Rock just cuts his chest open and exposes himself. It is, it is, it's funny, but it is the, it's not what I would expect from him. Okay. I, I mean, I also this—he's uh,
1: he's a genius. He's brilliant. The Dave Letterman interview show, incredible. It is a good show. It's a very strong show. I think. I think uh, Letterman is really full of himself. I'm not the biggest fan of Letterman because I think he's I think he's up his own ass a lot. <laughs> but
0: fair. But in the first ten minutes of the Jay Z episode, Jay Z subtweets Jimmy Fallon, and it is
1: wonderful. All right, I, I do want to see the Jay Z one. I watched the George Clooney one. Really like the George Clooney one. Watched the Barack Obama one. I thought he was just kissing Obama's ass the whole time. But uh, the Clooney eh. the Clooney one was a lot of fun.
0: Okay, let's let's get out of news question mark and uh, into so. the the reason you agreed to come on the show is like you put up a tweet about uh ninja who's you know he's a big (laughs) Fortnite streamer and i respond like hey i I smell some salt in this and then you know i had had a conversation but i think the thing that i took away from that is like you seem to have a very uh specific view of platforms and that a platform is destined to be what it is when you build a tool there's only one way you can use it I don't fully buy into that, but also I've seen YouTube has struggled to find other monetization strategies for its creators, which is why certain people have gone over to uh, have tried to go independent and go into Patreon. And Facebook is which uh, you produce content for. Uh, I like Dankfire a lot, but I have to go out of my way to find it, even though I follow your channel on Facebook, because when I go to Facebook, I I don't see it. I I don't know where it is. Woo, okay, we, so, we'll dive in question, here. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so our plat- I, my question is, like, are platforms destined to always be what they are, or is there a way to change?
1: Uh, unfortunately, I think the platform is destined to be the way they are. And I don't say that, I, I'm i not closed-minded about this, because I've, uh, d- for a little bit of my backstory, um, went to Drexel University in Philadelphia, was one of the, uh, The first three graduating classes of digital media. So I've been in this space since 2001. I've been experiencing the digital shift. I shot my first feature film on a Panasonic HVX that was modified with a lens adapter to put cinema lenses onto a digital camera um, that could only shoot 720p. And we made that bitch sing. Uh, My second feature I shot on the Red One. Um, All low budget productions, all I did the digital distribution route. I took it to the, this company Synetic, and they put, my movies were on Netflix, Amazon, iTunes in the, in the earlier days of them. But I've always embraced the digital culture. I had a, I had three seasons of an, a, a, vi, a video podcast before YouTube was even around. We used to do sketches. I used to have an old sketch comedy team called sweaty robot. We would, uh, post videos to just the internet (laughs) like no particular place using different platforms and it was all like well can does the compression handle something that goes over two minutes because at the time i mean youtube was like limited to two to three minutes or something like that something ridiculous when it when it launched so i think it was five yeah it was five it was something like at first it was even I, i believe it was like close to three and it had uh a a ton of compression issues like it was made for webcams it was not made for taking like a .mov file and crunching that down to something digestible and in its launch it's very in the infancy of of the the, uh, platform so i've i've seen that platform grow i've seen facebook grow i when it was the facebook that's when i started back when i was in college and it became facebook and that went dormant for a while i saw titter twitter blow up sorry titter (laughs) Well, they don't have a nudity policy,
0: yeah. so it could be called Twitter.
1: Uh, Instagram. You know, I watched um, I watched all the, the file sharing platforms come and go and die. So I've been involved in this industry for a long time. Um, I've done stuff on YouTube. I've done stuff, you know, for Netflix. I've done stuff for uh, OTT platforms like Sony View. Like we that's where Spacebar started was on Sony View. It's tough to change people's viewing habits. And I'll say that for every medium when someone goes to a theater they want that roller coaster experience now they want that larger than life experience. They don't want to watch a quiet movie in a the theater now don't get me wrong they're still fans of the traditional cinema experience but we're not talking about that We're talking about like major consumers the majority of consumers and they want they want to go see a fast five movie they want to go see an Avengers movie with their 3D glasses that's three hours long and it's a nonstop thrill ride because that's what, that's how they view the cinema. Um, when you go to Twitter, you know what that is. You know that's like a living message board and that's it. You know, you you per, peruse through Twitter. You're not like looking to watch video content. On YouTube, and I saw YouTube, you know, it it's flip-flopped and jumped around and changed and read and now YouTube Red's back and, paid subscription stuff, but the platform of YouTube was a a person-to-person connection. You know, it it was homespun, it was hobbyists talking about a particular subject matter. I I call it preaching to the choir. The three pillars of YouTube were there needs to be a pre-existing creative IP that you're talking about, you need to be extremely positive and preach to the choir or speak to the modern consensus of that property. And three, you had to be yourself and the production value had to be low. Those were the three pillars of YouTube and they are still successful. It's 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 always going to be a hobbyist platform. Now there's Twitch. And my comment about Ninja was that I liken Twitch to prostitution. And hear me out. I don't – If you if you consider prostitution bad, that's on you. That's a moral thing. I'm talking about the necessity of a prostitute or the necessity of paying to spend time with someone. And that is what I see Twitch. Twitch is like, you know, the advent of like cam girls going from like strippers to cam girls and and things like that, where it's a way to connect with people that you normally wouldn't get the opportunity to connect with or you're filling a void inside of you. Like you don't you don't have these relationships. So you go on there and you hang out with Ninja who's the best at what he does and you watch him play for four hours, and it's a very passive experience. Or you can interact with him, and you could tip him if you're crazy enough to do that. It's a lot of, it's it's the mechanics that are being pulled from, kind of prostitute slash stripper culture. I, I hate to break the people, <laughs> but it, I still here here's where
0: my my issue comes. Like uh, there is a great quote. I I think it was Gary Vanderchuck, who I'm not a huge fan of. Someone smart. Who, who's smart and they're rich for being smart what they said was when the iphone came out nobody predicted uber the the iphone was an internet connected uh, mobile phone with a gps in it and since it had the connection to the internet and a gps you were able to build uber on top of what it provided yeah. when it comes to youtube philip defranco who started as a gossip monger he has evolved his show into a what i perceive to be a fairly balanced news format but of course young philip defranco never would have known that mkbhd who started as a kid in his bedroom just reviewing vcrs has now turned into an extremely successful tech reviewer who sells tens of thousands of dollars of merch whenever he drops clothes uh same thing with the with the paul brothers the paul brothers you don't they don't make their money that much from their videos they make it from their merchandise i think platforms yes they do have their limitations but it's the people who learn how to build on those imitations and create the best version of it those are the ones that stand out i still think that twitch is young enough that no one has figured out the best way to utilize the limits of live streaming
1: and look i'll I'll say this that's what everyone says with every platform and i'm not kidding i don't even i'm not even throwing shade on you but when you're in these meetings every like from a production from a producer standpoint they're like what's the evolution of this and it's yeah. usually not much more than the crux of it you know whatever that kernel is whatever people are interested in you can't stray too far from it cuz even shows that have a higher concept like youtube shows that i i loved in their heyday were like epic mealtime but epic mealtime in it, in its crux was just dudes hanging out being stupid, making gross food. But it wasn't like a cooking show with this like really particular formatting and you weren't trying to learn anything from it. You were just seeing like what crazy stuff these guys got into and it's very heavily personality-based. And I think when you're dealing with things that are heavily personality-based and it's not like a movie star, it's not like your favorite actor, you can't have that personality stray too far from what they're good at doing. And I think that's where you always run into trouble. Like, What are you supposed to do with Ninja besides watch him play video games because he's the best at Fortnite? But he's not the best at PUBG, and he's not the best at Overwatch. He's just the best at Fortnite. And he's good at yep. those other games, but the reason everyone loves him is because he's the best. He's not the smartest dude. He's not the funniest dude. He's not the most charismatic guy. What else do you do with him because this will happen? And, and I don't have the answer for this, and it's it's sort of a rhetorical question. But I'm curious to see how you would answer this. What do you do with him after Fortnite isn't the top game again? What what is his next step? What do you do with the guy? I think what I was talking about more is like the platform and the idea
0: of a live stream. Uh, I think guys like Ninja who they've they've definitely hitched their wagon to Fortnite. If Fortnite dies, and it did, they will either go the way of Minecraft YouTubers, or they'll find something else to do. Like. PewDiePie, what he's doing now is entirely different from what he did five years ago. Like it or not, he's still successful because he was able to shift when horror games and jump scare reactions stopped being the most watched thing on YouTube. His shift towards video essays is – it it saved him and and is what he says like is his mental health because he hated what he's doing before.
1: Well, the point I'm trying to make is that these platforms are personality dependent. That's like – it goes part and parcel. So it's like how do, I, how do I interact? How do I experience these personalities? In Twitch, it's a live stream where I'm spending time with people. With YouTube, it's that very hypercut vlogger approach. But it's still like I'm a personal I'm, – I'm spending time with, with people. Facebook is not meant as a media dissemination tool. Facebook is the digital representation of your personality. You know, people don't fake it on Facebook. You fake it on Twitter. You fake it on Instagram. But Facebook is just basically like the high school you went to, the college you went to, your friends and family. And then if you're bigger than that, your fans. But for the most part, it's a very – it's the most realistic representation of us digitally that we have. And that's why no Uh, one sees our videos. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you do. You get
0: 123,000 views. I don't know how many of those are real because Facebook counts a view as what? Like
1: one second of play that count as a view? Three seconds. It's terrible. Oh, um, yeah. If you, you, know, yeah, you want bet- to see if a video does good, just look at the engagement. Look at the comments yeah. and the shares. That That's the um, deciding factor of whether a Facebook video does well. Uh, views. Fair enough. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Views on Facebook, they've always been a, a weird thing. But – I don't know if Twitch is going to be around forever, but it, it, it's a platform specifically built for live streaming. And yes, it was specifically built for gaming, but YouTube was built as a dating website. And now it's the second largest search engine in the, in the world. We always talk about the successes, but and uh, there's and there's a and there's 100 failures in the way. But Twitch seems like it has enough people on it now that it stands a chance that it can actually explore what it can become and what the best thing for it is going to be.
1: Well, and here's the other hurdle. I think Twitch is an amazing platform. I love the idea of Twitch. I would love to be able to do live formatting, like almost like kind of like live TV. You run into the audience and the audience doesn't want that. And that's the other thing. These platforms, as much as they're personality driven, they're audience driven. And you can't, the audience is very particular, especially in the gaming space. And, and a lot of these uh, digital platforms have gaming roots because gaming is a digital medium. Um, there's no way around that. But when you go to Twitch and, and and again, when something becomes popular, they bring in a bunch of like traditional media people in and they're like, hey, this gaming stuff looks stupid. What else can we do? And they try to make TV show type shit. And that's what you see. You saw like that happen with YouTube. And then their audience is like, I, that's not why I come to this platform. I don't come to this platform to watch TV. I watch TV on my TV. Facebook tried to
0: buy their way towards being a a video platform. When they first started launching uh, Facebook Live and video in general, they paid paid Fox Media a ton of money. I think IGN got a ton of – like every major cool kid media brand got tons of money from Facebook to start producing content for Live. But no one cared because Facebook is not – if Facebook wants to be a video platform, they need to build a separate app. Yeah, like well, that's Facebook what we're, Messenger. We're... Facebook Messenger was a thing in Facebook, but they spun it off into its own different app, and now that's a whole different business model for them.
1: Well, and I mean, here I'll 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 kind of get into the nitty gritty if that's all right with you about like our exp- our experience with Facebook and why we went to the platform. So. In the company, they said we have this opportunity. Facebook is launching Watch. Watch is their video platform. Right now, it's in Facebook proper, it's not its own independent app. We're hoping that it becomes that. Uh, They were like, We can give you guys, we can pay you to make a, a pilot season of shows, which is five episodes, or we can do a deal where you bring over your content and we give you ad credit. So that means you can boost your videos with real money, but it's like fake Facebook money. For them, it's fake, but for users, it's real. Um, you can boost your videos so that they get a better, uh, like, uh, more eyeballs on them. So, like, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Like, we don't really need to – because if you if you make the pilot, they have – it. they barely renewed any other pilots because they kill them pretty quickly. So, we thought we'd have a better chance since we had a back library of content, just boosting it and kind of starting a, a footprint on Facebook, moving away from YouTube. So, we do that. Um And the problem is when you run out of those ad credits, the only way for people to see your stuff is to pay to boost it. So it's a pay to play platform. The problem is you don't, there's no way to get ad revenue and only certain channels get ad revenue because they haven't cracked the nut on, they don't know how to do it, you know, because a lot of people's content is, it's stolen, you know, it's ripped content. And I I think they're afraid of advertisers being like, no, I'm not going to advertise on like a boot, like something that could be taken down for copyright infringement
0: so that's what yeah, i think tyrese all- gibson is the thing that's keeping facebook from uh, going legit to video but really <laughs> oh do uh, you not know tyree tyrese's facebook page is nothing
1: but ripped videos yeah oh yeah oh exactly like yeah i mean uh it's it's the technique it's the black bar technique right um so that's that's one of the problems i think that they're up against but uh what sucks is when you don't have your marketing budget anymore because your sketches cost too much, you can't boost your videos. So you need to rely on organic growth, and that's very difficult to do on a pay-to-play platform. Okay, so uh, let's talk about one thing related to this, and then I want to talk about
0: Spacebar. and we can we can take it on home. Okay, so uh, do you know anything about Cracked.com and their video team?
1: Um, I do know about Cracked. I didn't really read too much into their video team. I know – that um they cut a lot of them loose right
0: oh they cut them all loose yeah it was cracked for those who don't know they have some of the best i i I maintain this they were like they exceeded like you think heyday college humor when it was hardly working and jake and amir the best college humor videos that were out there they exceeded that level with their content it was well researched it was entertaining uh it was extremely diverse it got pretty good metrics in terms of YouTube views, but cracked the company. uh, Just one day they pulled the plug and no press release, nothing. A few months go by Daniel O'Brien, who was the head of that video team. He goes on a podcast of one of the former cracked people. And the thing he says is like, I know because I was there, I was deeply involved in the stuff that cracked was doing with being ad supported. There's a huge, and what he said was there's a huge sea change coming to new media and ad supported media where money's going to run out and uh you people only know it if they're in that space right now and i mean we're we're seeing it in other places like uh ev- even big media brands have had layoffs but crack just decided we're cutting our whole video team because it, it wasn't sustainable
1: it's so not, they yeah. I mean, we are we have the cheapest production costs in town as far as sketch mm-hmm. comedy and i know that for a fact because i'm Probably the only guy that can do that and the team of people I work with and my partner Phil, like I know for a fact what other sketch comedy companies what they spend per minute compared to us um, and it's it's not sustainable and Phil and I also wear a lot of hats and work on a lot of different productions but if you're so you're making I think roughly two dollars, two to ten dollars per1,000 views on YouTube that's ridiculous like do you you know how successful your video has to be week in and week out
0: yeah you have to be a paul brother or an mkbhd
1: or or uh pewdiepie and and the paul brothers don't spend shit on their videos their vlogs so there's no it's not weighted it's not like oh so it's a sketch so it cost you guys i don't know let's say at 700 to two thousand dollars per minute for a five to six minute sketch if it cost you that much you're not going to make that on the video Like, it's an impossibility. Like, you need a viral hit every time out. So there is no money for that, and you can't – as much as people love – because, again, it looks good on sizzles. It looks good on promotional reels because it's polished, cool content. It just is – it's not sustainable. Yeah, I. It's not even just a sketch comedy. Like
0: uh, the reason, that, part of the reason I started this podcast. No one listens to this podcast, but podcasting is a sustainable platform. the co- The bar for me to not be losing money producing this podcast is comically low. Think of a small number in your head. If I start making that money off of my Patreon, I'm I'm I've broken even on the show, and I can do it forever. I may never hit that point, but it's fine. I think that there's. There is no, it doesn't feel like there's good film punditry anymore. There's two guys on YouTube that are doing film punditry. One is John Campia and the other is the place John Campia used to work at, which is called Collider. The difference is John Campia, the man prints money every single day, probably makes just doing the rough numbers in my head, probably makes two hundred dollars a day if not more than that just on answering super chat questions on his live show and he's like okay and he has an hour show a day just for taking super chat questions wow collider on the other hand they have and it's, and it's just him and a few editors collider on the other hand they have pr- they have i think like 15 20 full-time staff uh they're they probably have the production costs close to a local news station and their videos get like 50,000 views if they're lucky. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's terribly unsustainable and that's what got me afraid. Like Collider just got sold off to some guy who thinks he can make it work. I don't know how they just put out their podcast on an actual podcast network. If they make some ads there, cause podcast CPMs are great. You know what a podcast yeah. CPM goes for?
1: I, I can I can I can
0: imagine it's <laughs> sense. Nope. It's uh no twenty-five dollars CPM. Wow. So podcasts and that's before promo codes and referral bonuses and all that. So that's like podcasts are a much more sustainable medium at every level. You can get big or small as long as you hit a relatively decent audience size. Wow, that's not you bad can, at all. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. You can do well with podcasts. I think it's, yeah, it's like you have 5,000 downloads per episode, you can start putting ads in your podcast. And podcast ads also have the most engagement of any medium. I'm going on a tangent, but I, that is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you. Because like you're someone who's in this, and like it's sad because there's a lot of talented people over at Collider. There's a lot of talented people over at Machinima. And I hope that you guys can figure a way to make it work out. But I, I don't think that AdSense is the answer anymore.
1: No, it's it not. And going back to Facebook, like they don't, they haven't even released ad ad credit or AdSense for people. Like you, you don't make money off of your videos. Like Good mm-hmm. Plummas, if did you see Good Plummas? It's one of the backfire uh, sketches. It's like the yeah. Mario Brothers Scorsese mashup. That was when um, you were still on YouTube, right? We moved it over to Facebook, and it did. It did almost. I think it's at two million views now. We haven't seen a penny of that. Like there's nothing – there's no advertising on it. There's no way to monetize it. So the theory is this. Again, Phil and I do a lot of other productions for this company, um, which make us valuable in other avenues. But for us to be valuable as a sketch comedy show, we need to be so big that we can go to brands and say, hey, give us 50K and we'll do a custom episode for you. Give us 10K and we'll feature your product in our next sketch. That's the goal now. That's the only play right now is to basically be a commercial.
0: Yeah, because even if you were doing those levels on YouTube it's, without doing brand engagements, it's it's not enough. Is That's that no- why. Yeah, like uh, I don't know how much you're allowed to say, but like I'm a huge fan of ETC They're It's them and Red Letter Media as far as I'm concerned in terms of the content that when it pops up, I immediately watch it because it brings me the most joy. I got a little bit of money to to give them when they start their Patreon. I'm going to give it to them cuz I I know the numbers are so terrible that $5 a month from me is more than any view that yeah. that they can get.
1: It's more than a like, follow and a subscribe, I'll tell you that much. Uh no, that's all yeah. Those those guys are awesome. They're close friends of mine. Um it's it's a little weird right now. I I honestly don't know exactly what's going on. It's uh, ever changing, but Yeah, keep supporting them. Those guys are great. They put a ton of work into it. You know, there's a lot of these guys that just fucking half-ass it. They do a ton of research, they do a ton of writing and preparation for all their shows, and they they really have a passion for what they're doing.
0: Yeah, it's and that's why I I like to reward quality content in any way I can. Uh, And And that's the only way
1: to keep it alive. Really, like that's that that's what I always the the problem is when you're young you expect everything to be free but anything worth something you have to put a price tag on it you know like how much is it worth to you uh, and that's and that's it it's we we live in a capitalist society and if you're not paying for something it's not going to exist like as, as much as you loved all the, the you know and a lot of people i know liked what crack was doing as much as they all love that if crack was like hey man you got to pay $4 a month people would be like no thanks <laughs> that's what they would do and and it's crazy because my mom sometimes will say, why are they so negative? This is free. And I'm like, because that's the way that digital media works. Yeah. They, there is they no expect- value assigned to it. It's expected. Yeah. yeah. There is no value assigned to it. Yeah. You expect something to be free. And when – like
0: there's so many YouTubers that when they do launch a Patreon, uh, they, they get shit for it. And uh, – I don't know. I think you can say what you want about the Paul brothers. What they have done with merch is brilliant because there's rumors that Jake and Logan Paul pulling a million dollars a month, if not more than that, just on their merch line.
1: Probably. I mean, you know, they're they're probably pocketing. They have a, probably have a good deal with a company making T-shirts now. I don't know. One of the probably the digital ones that there's no overhead, uh, but. If everyone's buying one of their t-shirts, what are they, 30 bucks a piece? Yeah. Somewhere in that range. They make five bucks a shirt. Make so, five bucks a shirt or more, probably more because they're big uh, and they sell a lot of merchandise. So, uh, yeah, I could see that happening. It's just it's, an,
0: it's just another way to make money. And I think the next five years of digital media is going to be, okay, ads are not sustainable because people are using ad blockers or they just don't pay enough, whatever. The next five years of digital media is going to be another just finding more ways to make money beyond ads.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that, but that's always, believe it or not, even in the earlier days, that was the only way to make money. It was a misconception because I think not all, but some YouTubers like to blow smoke up your ass and pretend like they're regular people and they're not ingrained in this industry because they need to have that homespun feel. But it was always about integrations, always. Even even from the early days, when I first started working in primarily – I used to work for the company uh, Studio 71 back when it was The Collective. Even then – and that Epic Mealtime, I went from like a, watching them. They were one, one of my clients at one point, uh, like a shared client for, with the company. But we used to – integrations were the only way they made money. It was the only way. It was It was the outside brand deals. Their views, their views were fine, but their views tapered off and then fell off real hard. There was no way you can support seven dudes with the kind of money that like you get from ad revenue. So it had to be from outside sources.
0: Okay, let's talk about Spacebar. Uh, so uh, my my secret uh, desire to, to get you on here is to to try to convince you to, to bring back Spacebar as a podcast specifically. Because when uh, – oh. On the final episode of Spacebar, it was either that or on one of the ETC live streams, I asked a question saying, why wasn't Spacebar a podcast? And your response was, I just don't care. And (laughs) I know you didn't mean that directly at me, and I didn't take it personally. But I was like, I imagine killing your baby might not have been the right time to ask you that question.
1: So there's been four iterations of Spacebar. They've all yeah. So back again, the Sony View space Spacebar was born in a very tumultuous situation when we were working for Sony View. Um, and I had pitched the show because I love I love the Rat Pack era of Hollywood. I love Dean Martin. And then I also love shows like Dinner for Five and that kind of sophisticated adult podcast conversation because I felt that like a lot of podcasts went like, hey, what's up? Flip-flap, you know, like real super fucking internet and I'm like, I don't want to listen to a bunch of assholes. I want kind of a cooler vibe. Like I'm, I'm about you know, I'm a filmmaker. I'm about an aesthetic and a style and a and a, and a mood. And I, I really wanted to do a, a a podcast or a panel discussion show with that vibe. So we did the first iteration of it. It got undercut. The no one even saw this. The first ever episode of Spacebar. It got undercut by the uh, EP I was working with. And he really fucked the show up, and really put me in a in a bad place. And I was like, I don't even want to do it anymore after we did the first episode because it was it was terrible. And then I found out that we were contractually obligated through Sony View to do a space bar. It was pitched, and they were like, Yeah, and we need the show. So then uh, I sat down one night and I was working on it, and Phil was staying late. And Phil was like, Hey, you want me to work on this with you? And we, and we like we worked on the like first space bar, uh, and it was um what was your favorite what is your favorite versions of batman and superman cinematically what version of batman v superman would you want to see like we did this, this whole batman superman extravaganza and uh, back in the day we used to shoot all the shows on a friday and we would shoot for two hours straight and we would drink real booze and get pretty toe up and then we would cut them up and then it would, we would dole the episodes out so like we would shoot them back to back to back uh and it was a lot it was a lot of fun it was everyone's favorite show to make in the studio We were like this young upstart studio. We were new to machinima. Everyone was really liking what we were doing. The show actually looked good and that was exciting. Like it had a really polished, cool vibe to it. Um, And then the Sony view platform, our shows got canceled from that. And it was like, Oh, that's a bummer. So then we had to do the kind of last episode of space bar, but it was a good run. And we really got to have a lot of fun with it. Then we relaunched primer. uh, And With that, we had the Dankfire sketch comedy show. We had a show called This Week in Geek, which was like a nerd news show. And then we had uh, Spacebar on Fridays. And that was a similar – we just carried over the same vibe. And I'll tell you what, taking over uh, Machinima Prime, which was a dead YouTube channel, at the time we didn't know that. At the time we didn't know that the algorithm was working against everything we were doing, so people weren't even seeing it. Um, And the people that were there, they were there to watch like Batman versus Superman, Bat in the Sun, Superpower Beatdown episodes. They weren't there to watch a, you know, kind of polished panel discussion show. It felt more like television. So that was probably the most frustrating because we were dealing with brand intelligence. and, and, And they would just tell us everything we were doing wrong and why people weren't watching it. And we just kept constantly changing the show and the style and the format. And I don't know if you've ever seen this version of it when we were just in the basement on the couch. Yeah. I saw um, I watched the whole thing. Yeah. I loved it. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and Coop was like, those were the most depressing days of Spacebar because you didn't you didn't care anymore. And I was like, no, I couldn't because we 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 cut out all the stuff I loved about the show. And we were just guys on a couch talking about stuff and trying to be as relevant as possible. Which I always think if you're if you're trying to stay on all the trends, you could never keep up. Like you need something more than that. Um then Twitch came along and everyone was like, here it is. We have this great opportunity. And actually, the Twitch version of Spacebar was successful. It was on the ETC party time channel. ETC would push out to it. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of engagement. Um, but it was, we were doing it along with a lot of other things uh, dank fire, action figures, and also some other stuff I really can't talk about, uh, the bigger things. So it was, it was tough to do it. And we were also, uh, as The team was juggling a lot of stuff, and then we were finding ourselves not prepared enough for Spacebar and not doing the shows we wanted to do. And they're like, Ricky and Elliot, sometimes they would be working on stuff, so they're like, hey, we can't be guests. So we'd have to scramble to find guests. And I was like, I don't want to do this half-assed version of the show. And, I, dude, I love the show. I think the show is I've, – I've never had a bad show. I've had guests that I haven't been crazy about. But uh, the show's always been fun, and I always felt like it could work. It's just none of the platforms that I'm that we have access to, I don't think the show works on. I think it's more of a TV show. As far as doing an audio podcast, we have considered it, and maybe maybe we will do that at some point. I think right now we're trying to figure out if Dankfire continues, um, surprise— uh, how do we show more of phil and i's personalities because we we've had a, a tough time linking phil and i to the sketches especially on facebook mm-hmm. part
0: of the appeal of spacebar and like why i loved it so much is because it was a different kind of film commentary like i, I couldn't get something like that from collider or jeremy johns or chris or chris stuckman like and i liked like the the if you look at video series like that as a story, the story of space bar is a bunch of people drinking alcohol and just talking about movies. And I think, I don't know if it's the introduction or the booze or the set, but there was something about that that felt really different. Even when you guys gave a terrible review to Dr. Strange, it was still
1: interesting to watch. And well, thank you. yeah, I think, <laughs> well, you got to come correct at the bar in the start. I think you know that you can't come with some weak shit. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I think like it doesn't need to be called space bar, but I think
0: the idea of that, of friends sitting down, having a drink and talking about movies, I think something like that, it could be suited for a podcast. And if you do produce a show and you get, again, I think some people recommend 5,000 downloads an episode. You can start putting ads on that podcast and they're pretty good and they get, and they have pretty good payouts. The financials of podcasts, they work out in almost every direction. If you're really small, it's not that expensive to keep your podcast going. If you're really big, then your CPMs are going to be through the roof.
1: And All right. well, maybe I don't know. You're, you're kind of selling me because it like uh, if we can parlay some of the old fans that come through. Yeah, we might be able to hit a decent. uh these little payday there. Yeah. I don't know. Like
0: with with ad supported media, there's only two. You can either be really small like Jeremy Johns who it's just him in a green screen and a version of final cut, I guess, and he makes enough money on ads to make that his living. And that cuz it's just him. But if you want to get really big, it's that middle, it's that area of growth that kills you cuz you do have to balloon the size of your crew to that of a small TV station and you're going to constantly be taking an L financially the to get that high and to get enormous on ad supported media that isn't a podcast i don't think anyone's ever going to do it you even have new media companies like vox media who are huge and they've actually invested really they've invested a ton of money in podcasts but even they had to cut staff because putting ads on their website wasn't cutting it for them
1: I I think we there is a version of spacebar we can do. I mean, maybe I don't know. I'll run it by Phil and Coop and see if that's something they'd want to get into. But it would be kind of fun to just jam out because uh, I I do miss that. We it's funny because uh, we do we basically do spacebar in the office just talking about movies and you know the current current events and stuff like that. Uh, it's just not televised. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> and hey, uh, I'll 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 tell you this also. H three H three H three. I don't know if you watch any other videos. They have a, a very they, they have what I like to call a John campy situation of just they get except they don't even respond but they put their podcast out on Twitch and again hundreds of dollars of bits coming in and they don't respond to a single one of their bit donations. They just pop up on the screen so people can see their name there like oh, what right. h3 does is they they do their podcast on Twitch so they can get bits and bit donations and then they put it up on YouTube so they can get a little bit of Adsense but they also have, podcast ads in there. So they're making money at every step of the way. I bet I'm pretty sure they make most of their money on the ads that they do in the show, but everything else is just cake on top.
1: We I, I think the the first step is we really Phil and I have to kind of blow up a little bit because then you can kind of do whatever you want. I think we have all the we have the tools and we have the content and we have the knowledge to make really successful stuff. We just haven't we haven't caught that wave yet. Uh and I, I have a top secret project coming down the pike. I actually have a meeting about it right after this, but I'm hoping that gets us gets us where we need to be, so we can. So maybe Spacebar does come back in all its glory. Yeah, and uh, we we'll just get more people watching but it.
0: I I encourage you to look into it because I, I I think that I think online film punditry and commentary it it is very dry, and I think the best film commentary is in podcasts. Like one of my favorite podcasts is called The Weekly Planet. Ninety minutes a week. They talk about movie news and they review movies. This podcast is a very blatant ripoff of that format, and it's 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 worth looking into. I do hope that you have all the success, and also thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, man. I had a good time. It's good. Uh, you, you got you got yourself an open invitation. Hey, and we're back here. It's Samuel from after that interview was taped. Wasn't that wasn't that awesome? I thought it was awesome. I hope you thought it was awesome, too. Hey, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, uh, I'm su- I'm super serious. Give us a follow or a subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on every podcast app. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Overcast. I don't know about Stitcher, but Stitcher's shit. Also, Spotify. We're trying to get some Spotify engagement going, see if we can play the Spotify podcast game. I don't know how to play it. But we're going to certainly try. And if you're a longtime listener of the show and you like what we do, uh, we talked about it during the interview, but Patreon, uh, our, our bar for breaking even is so low. And if we hit that goal that I've set on Patreon, we will be able to break even and we'll be able to do this without it impacting our financials at all, which is something I certainly strive for. I'll produce this show because it's fun to make. But it'd be nice if it was fun to make for free. Other than that, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Samuel underscore C137 there. If you're curious as to where our music's from, that is courtesy of AFIX Music. If you need to license music for your project, be sure to get it from AFIX Music. That's A-F-F-I-X We'll be back with another episode next week. Probably be reviewing A Quiet Place, so be sure to check that out if you want to participate in that review. Otherwise, I've been Samuel. This is Culture Vacuum. You are now being decompressed.